You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. On today's episode, we take stock of the current state of the Black Lives Matter movement with our guests, Gabriel Donnelly, Angela Clark, and Aaron Williams. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I are going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is May 12th, and we're recording this current event section. Uh, we're going to be discussing a panel that the Platypus Affiliated Society put on on May 2nd of this year entitled Free Speech and the Left. I'm going to read just uh, the beginning of the panel description. They write, quote, historically, the left believed the more free speech, the better, and that the state should regulate it as little as possible. Recently, the left has become ambivalent about the First Amendment, of which it fears the right may be taking better advantage. The storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th has exacerbated many of these fears, provoking widespread support for the ensuing censorship campaign in the name of law and order, including the Washington Post celebrating the Sedition Act of 1798 that criminalized defamation of government. Uh, I won't read the whole panel description, but it, it ends with the supposedly provocative questions have civil liberties become a right-wing idea is the state censorship of critics a serious threat in the face of the left's historic commitment to civil liberties how should the left approach free speech and the right to protest today the panel featured ben burgess a professor of philosophy at georgia state university eric thomas chester of the socialist party usa Carl Davidson of Committees, Committees of Correspondence and Ed Remus from the Planet Post Society. So we talked, Andrew and I decided we were going to talk about how atrocious this concept for a panel was before they even did the panel. And I wasn't even planning to listen to it because I just could tell from the description what their line was going to be. And I kind of know how far Platypus has fallen down the rabbit hole of reaction. And it was pretty clear to me what we were going to say. But Andrew, you actually had the patience to listen to most of the panel, right? Yeah, it was pretty outrageous. I mean, the first thing I want to say is is on, on this idea of, of the left, you know, always being for free speech. It's one thing when you're just limiting yourself to government restriction of free speech, but when they start to get all incensed, and probably rightly so, about uh, Facebook, other uh, social uh, media platforms having uh, power and being able to, you know, regulate and keep people off that they want. Uh, if, if you are not just talking about the government, but if you're talking about non-government actors keeping people silent, the, the left has a very, very, very bad history with this. I mean, one of the panelists says, oh, you know, people Jack have been, at least the main people Jack have been, are very, very pro-free speech. And I'm like, they are? You know, what about to their critics on the left? You know, what kind of criticisms of the Jacobin line do we ever see in Jacobin? If I'm not mistaken, you you sent them a a submission and they didn't even respond to you. Yeah. 
okay, so you might be critical of Facebook, but... Um, yeah, there's some hypocrisy there. And I mean, this goes to the issue of what is free speech for? And I, I don't think that these people really had a handle on, on why we need free speech. Right, so I, I did listen to the beginning of the panel... Uh, is all I had time for, but Eric Thomas Chester begins by, you know, basically framing his position like, you know, we need more discussion and debate in society to further like the democratic project. So the left should just be for free speech for everyone. And I, you know, I assume that is sort of like the construct that the panel is mostly framing their ideas around. Is that right? Like democracy involves this interplay of ideas, so you should never censor anyone. And speech is sort of defined in this very effusive, abstract way that doesn't seem to have any limits on what it, what actually constitutes speech. Well, yeah, he, he was like that. I don't think most of the, the, the other ones were. What I really think was underlying much of the discussion was, to quote the second paragraph of the description that Platypus put out, calls to clamp down on right-wing speech possibly strengthen the same initiatives that the capital state uses to suppress the left. And they talked about Woodrow Wilson... When he was president, uh, Eugene Debs was convicted of sedition and imprisoned, and Facebook purged leftist pages like the World Socialist website, supposedly recently. You know, whether that was a mistake or not, who, who knows. But I think that that's what was, is really motivating uh, people, is this belief that anything that the government does against the right wing can be then used uh, against the left. I, th- I think that is really what is, is driving... A, a lot of this. Um, but it's also sort of a an orientation toward the present political situation that seems wildly in the dark about the actual dangers of the far right. I totally agree. I think that at this moment when the Capitol insurrection took place in January, Trump has got more of a stranglehold over the Republican Party. Now, they, even than before, I mean, earlier today, they just removed uh, Liz Cheney from leadership role in the Republican Party in the House. The real clear and present danger, to use that term, is the far right. And I think that for the most part, the panelists don't see it that way. They are more concerned with the government clamping down what they believe is too strongly on the, the insurrectionists who they deny were insurrectionists. Um, and they are worried about uh, you know the power of Facebook and so forth. If you want to talk about free speech as a strategic imperative, which is a, a term that Burgess used, Okay, so it's not only morally good, but uh, strategically it's an imperative. If you want to talk about free speech as a strategic imperative, you know, you, you need to have a real discussion of what are the huge threats that we really face. What is the real threat to our free speech? It's the, the damn far right. That's the biggest threat that we face to free speech, to democratic elections, to having a democratic country at all. If you try to abstract from that, and that's what this whole panel was about, is abstracting from that, I mean, you're, you're living in this kind of bubble. I mean, this was, this was an attempt to make sure the bubble doesn't burst. On, on this podcast before, we've talked about the concept of what constitutes speech, incitement to 
overthrow an election that is not like democratic speech that's like the opposite of it yeah it was interesting because they were very uh i thought cagey about this they were, were were like oh well donald trump did not incite you know an insurrection really or even violence wow wow because he used very guarded words and you could never convict him in a court of law on that well okay but those are bourgeois standards of one bourgeois country. And that's not really, as I see it, the issue, whether he could be convicted according to the rather bizarre laws of the United States, but whether, in fact, he wound up a mob and pointed them right at the Capitol. And basically, it's really weird for people who call themselves on the left to have a, a position on this that's far to the right of Liz Cheney. <laughs> I know. I, I was just saying like, wow, but I don't know why I'm ever surprised by things Platypus does anymore. I mean, they published editorials urging people to vote for Trump in 2016 and in 2020. So, and, you know, and their figurehead, Chris Cutrone, is a, you know, admitted Trump voter. So I don't know why I'm surprised anymore by any of the crazy shit that they say. Right. What's wor worrisome to me is that the crazy shit was not limited to them on this panel mm -hmm. right uh there was a lot of you know soft on uh capital insurrection stuff people denying that it was an insurrection um and one of them said well it wasn't an insurrection and it, you know it was a protest that turned into a wow. mini riot wow and one of them uh, burgess criticized the feds uh, prosecution of the insurrectionists I don't know what to call them, for being extreme wow. uh, and for including people who just entered the building. Wow. The real giveaway was the uh, the guy from Platypus, uh, Edward Remus. He begins his talk by referring to, quote, entry of pro-Trump protesters <laughs> into the U.S. Capitol building. Wow. Like it's a goddamn guided tour they went wow. on. Wow, wow. You know, I mean, entry yeah. in, into the U.S. Capitol building where they're tearing up, uh, you know, uh, metal barricades and using the poles to beat people over the heads. With. Yeah, where they basically had like a lynch mob looking for the vice president. Yeah, they like, constructed gallows and everything. Wow. Maybe they should change their slogan, platypus, to the left is dead, long live reaction. Anyway, that's all the time we have for this current event section. Up next, our discussion of the Black Lives Matter movement. We are recording this main segment on May 10th. We have several guests on today's Radio Free Humanity, and we're going to be talking about the current state uh, and the past year of the Black Lives Matter movement. Gabriel Donnelly is author of Minneapolis After the Third Precinct, the Black Lives Matter Uprising a Year Later. That's an article that you can read on With Sober Senses, the online publication of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Where we're welcoming back Angela Clard, who is one of the co-authors of a new editorial on the same uh, With Sober Senses site um, called On the Conviction of George Floyd's Murderer. Also, Aaron Williams, who is a co-author of that same editorial and the author of another piece called Death by Cop Again in Columbus, Ohio. We'll post all those links to those articles. Um, so thank you all for being here today. Yes, welcome to, to all of our guests. Hello, thank you for having me on. So from the moment when Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering George Floyd, immediately at that moment, a lot of the debate broke out in left and progressive circles on the question of whether the jury's verdict constitutes justice uh, for George Floyd. 
MHI's editorial says that it doesn't, but uh, what I found interesting is that the editorial doesn't focus on that issue of is this justice, is this not justice. Uh, the editorial is focused on the points that, quote, this verdict is a victory for the BLM, Black Lives Matter movement, and the editorial says that the verdict is a possible, quote, breakthrough in establishing some police accountability. So what I'd like to hear from the, the main authors of the editorial is why you chose to focus on those issues rather than the justice issue, uh, and why does MHI say that the verdict is a victory for BLM and a pro- possible breakthrough? Andrew Clark, you were one of the co-authors of that editorial. Do you want to start off with an answer? Successful prosecution is a big victory, first of all, because it's so rare that any cop is prosecuted for murdering um, uh, unarmed black people. And uh, when they are prosecuted, they're so rarely convicted. So this was a monumental feat. However, one conviction after the state put enormous amount of resources into it and got all those witnesses and got everything together so well, uh, one conviction does not change the face of racist policing in the United States. It's only a turning point if there are a lot of more prosecutions and they are successful. Uh, which is not likely to happen unless the laws change greatly and the reforms uh, in Congress and the Justice Department take effect and and local reforms. And uh, the other big breakthrough is the fact that the cops uh, told on each other. They're so used to this blue wall of silence where you never speak ill of another cop that they just didn't didn't expect their impunity ever to be impinged upon. And that has changed now. But uh, on justice, I want to say that's like much too big a concept to put on one verdict. Justice for black people after 400 years of oppression in this country is another matter. It's I know the families speak of justice and the movement speaks of justice because there used to be no justice at all and uh, the families want to emphasize that even if they got a, um, a money settlement it didn't make up for letting the person go unpunished but um, this is not justice in the larger sense of the word at all to have uh, one person or even if now they're going to try the other cops so even for four people convicted uh, no way makes up for the death of a man. Uh, this is error, and I will continue with uh, some of the comments that Anne made and add a few more. In the common sense notion of justice uh, as something which is is morally correct or righteous uh, or something that's prescribed by law, I guess that the verdict was just are that people have felt that it uh, is some measure of justice. But in a much greater sense, um, it's something that we decided to concentrate more on the side that the movement itself is was successful. And as Anne said, without the movement and the pressure brought to bear on the powers that be in Minneapolis, 
there wouldn't have been a verdict of guilty. It would have been another acquittal like uh, so many other cases uh, somewhat similar. There was also some controversy about the Floyd family itself and whether they felt that it was just or served the purpose of justice. Certainly, I remember uh, George Floyd's brother saying that it was just and that he was relieved. But I think uh, it was the mother of George Floyd or uh, another relative who said that it was not just, at least in the initial uh, interview uh, after the verdict, because it it would not bring George back to life and it would not restore the person that they knew and loved. And there would not redress the pain and suffering that they had suffered um, over this a long period and waiting for the trial and then waiting for the jury to come back with a verdict. Also, it's interesting to note that Keith Ellison, who is the um, Minnesota Attorney General, said to the press uh, after the verdict that this was not a verdict, uh, was not itself justice, that it was a step in that direction by holding the cop murderer uh, accountable for his actions. But justice is something that is a much broader notion that has to encompass a historical context in which black people have suffered uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So that's one of the reasons that we focus more on the effects of the movement. And it's interesting to note that the movement grew in confidence and capacity and strength as a result of this of this verdict. And that is something that will open up possibilities of other actions and new ideas about how to take the struggle forward. So the jury's verdict, of course, wasn't the first event that can be seen as a potential turning point. Uh, Gabriel Donnelly's article, which is entitled Minneapolis After the Third Precinct, Um, begins by discussing the energy and solidarity of participants in the Minneapolis uprising in the months after George Floyd was murdered. But Gabriel, you then cautioned that, quoting you, we must see the entire arc of the uprising, not just the powerful beginning, but the failings and faltering that followed. So what are you you talking about there? Gabriel commenting out. I'm trying to point out there when I say failings and falterings, which sounds very doomsaying, but in those very early powerful days, um, that perhaps a climax of was the burning of the third precinct, um, there was a lot of high ideas in the air and probably, again, the climax of those high ideas being the city council announcing that they were supporting, as, the, as they put it themselves in their own language, the complete dismantling of the Minneapolis Police Department, which d- did not come to pass. And so um, there there, these big legislative reforms and initiatives uh, and attempts at what has now been called, you know, defunding the police were not successfully achieved and still not have been successfully achieved despite a real big push in those early days. They still have not come about. Um, and to link it back to the trial, you know, uh, Keith Ellison, who is the attorney general, uh, and it's a bit of a family affair because his his son, Jeremiah Ellison, is on the Minneapolis City Council and has been pushing himself for defunding the police in Minneapolis. 
uh, Keith Ellison had to sort of intervene directly in this case in response to how forceful the push was from below for justice here. And so um, it's definitely incomplete uh, and has been, you know, uh, those earlier initiatives that seemed initially within reach were not achieved. Can I come in here? Because this is a really interesting story, you know, and I didn't know about it because a couple of weeks after George Floyd is mur- murdered, the city council in Minneapolis says we're going to dismantle the police. They get a majority of the city council, they vote, and in fact, the majority is so big it's a veto-proof majority. So that seems like it's a done deal. So how, after all of that, was it the case that the Minneapolis police were not dismantled? Gabriel again answering that. I think you're right. It is a very interesting story. And in, in the article on uh, on the website, you can see um, the, the footnotes. And I encourage anybody really interested to, to dive deep into the, the individual articles as it was unfolding and see how that veto-proof majority emerged and how it was really these council members responding to a lot of pressure. You know, they're describing getting barrages of emails, barrages of calls, being, you know, having to appear at, at marches and events and show their faces and just being faced with a huge demand to do something. And you can see on a day-to-day basis uh, individual members of the council being shifted and, and having to push for this. And so they had this, this veto-proof majority, and then they ended up voting unanimously later on for this repeal and replace amendment because Minneapolis is a charter uh, charter city. And within their charter, they have this, this mandate for a legal minimum amount of police force. Uh, it says X amount of police are needed for Y amount of people living in the city. And so if they were going to dismantle the police force, they needed to get rid of this mandate in the charter. So they unanimously vote, the city council unanimously votes to repeal and replace that language in the charter with language not directly describing police. So it all seems set. Everything's looking great. But Minneapolis also has this appointed legal body, essentially a standing constitutional convention, which is the 15 members legally appointed, uh, and it's their charter commission. And it's, so it's responsible for oversight of anything related to the charter. And so when the city council votes on this repeal and replace amendment, it goes to the charter commission, and they ended up voting, voting it down, 8 to 6. They needed to approve it for it to appear as a ballot measure, in the November 3rd elections, where it it certainly appears like it probably would have passed in that ballot measure. Now, this is a legally appointed body, and they're supposed to be doing legal oversight involving the charter, but their charter commissioner, uh, Matt Perry, actually described their decision to vote it down, saying, and this is an exact quote here, that because the city council was so intent on defunding the police, here's Matt Perry now, so I think having the, provi- the provision in the charter to have a minimum number of officers and employees in the department is a wise one at this time. So this was a consciously reactionary choice by the Charter Commission. And once, once they voted to shut down this repeal, repeal and replace an, uh, amendment, the council's hands were tied to an extent that they had to have some level of police force. Uh, this is Aaron. It's interesting to see the difference between the city council situation in Minneapolis and the one in Columbus, because we had demonstrations after George Floyd's murder uh, for a long time. I, I, I 
I remember them going day by day for a month or two, and then it dwindled down to some extent. But the reaction of the city council, seven members, four black, three white, I think four men, three women, was uh, always calm, let the process work. Uh, we need uh, reforms, admittedly. And so they decided to put uh, a ballot issue on the November 2020 ballot, which was entitled Ish Issue 2, Civilian Police Review Board and Inspector General Charter Amendment. And that passed on Election Day, something like 74% in favor to 20, what, 26% uh, opposed. And it created a Civilian Police Review Board to review instances of police brutality and police misconduct, but it then didn't have any real powers other than being able to make a decision uh, recommendations to the Columbus Police Department for disciplinary action. But that's as far as they've gone, and they've just gotten around, what is it, May now, just gotten around to setting up who is on this council and they haven't even gotten to the point of even hiring an inspector general who is supposed to be empowered to go out and make investigations of police misconduct and then meet with the uh, city council and make recommendations. Maybe that's an effect of the strength of the movement, relative strength of the movement in Minneapolis as opposed to Columbus and sort of delayed what may come down the pike later here in Columbus with respect to radical reforms like end of policing and defunding the police itself. But that's a long way off in my estimation here. And um, the, the, the short version of all this is that it's not really up to the city council. The city council can be swayed by the popularity of ideas and they need to get reelected every year or two or whatever, and they'll do the popular thing, but they don't have ultimate power. There are all these other sources of power that Gabriel goes into all this detail. I think it's very interesting in his story. So there's this commission and there's that commission and there's the state law that, of course, everywhere state law governs uh, over city law. And then there's, of course, the police unions, which are very, very strong in, in some places. And you can't change things just by voting for them when there's this obstacle course to get through. And that's really what's going on and is going to be going on every city that tries to get reforms. Minneapolis has a, a pretty small black population, right? So it's not that everyone on the council was black. It's that they were good-hearted white people there, too. But can you imagine in some city that's majority black, can you imagine the state letting them actually decide important things like that for themselves. No way. If I may quickly comment on that, I think Anne is com completely right. Um, I, this, the city council is really just the force that is m more swayable. 
uh, by this sort of democratic pressure, but they are just up against all these these entrenched, uh, in some cases bureaucratic, or in some cases just outright police force responses. I was really struck, and I included in the article um, by the council member uh, Steve Fletcher, openly talking about how he had attempted to cut money. He had cut money from the proposed police budget, and the police had done a slowdown in responses to calls in his area. And when people complained, the police would say, "Call your council member and ask why we did it." And this is the type of power that that they um, have the ability to exert any attempted reforms or cutbacks. This is Andrew. I think that there's another expression of the same kind of anti-democratic veto at some level overriding the the voters' wishes happening in a big way when it comes to the elections. I mean, in a lot of these so-called red states, you know, they're now instituting measures that are going to allow, like, people in Georgia who actually run things to abrogate the, the wishes of, of the voters if they don't like the way it came out. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's like, at some level, I wouldn't say it's completely a sham, but there's, this, the system looks a lot more democratic than it actually is. Once you start to hear these things and, and, and take them into consideration, uh, I mean, the forces of reaction just like they're 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 kind of everywhere everywhere, and they're not going to give up without a huge fight. I think that's something we really miss in looking at what has you know since we're doing this year, looking back a year later. I was in my article on on where we are in this fight. I think uh, we would be seeing the same level of uh, rioting, open rioting, and bigger presences in the street if there wasn't in the Twin Cities right now, essentially a military occupation. I think a lot of police forces and, as Andrew put it, forces of reaction were embarrassed last year, and they don't want that to happen again. So they are really, really um, overstepping and embracing this sort of repressive force. I, I mean, completely anecdotally, but I know a local sort of protest leader here who had, had organized several marches and spoken at them. and. and you know, that sort of thing. And he was telling me recently that he gets the police just showing up at his house once a week, knocking on the door, sort of coyly asking how he is. And somebody, you know, one of the officers said to him recently, uh, we talk about you so much, I feel like you're a celebrity. It's a pleasure to meet you. And just that sort of open intimidation. And, you know, pair this with uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department just had a whistleblower come out and say that there's um, a, a gang in the in the department they get tattoos when they kill someone they throw parties about it and the los angeles times you know broke this story and it just shows how i don't know how to put it diseased this institution is and has become aaron i think we should not overestimate the pull if you want to call it that the pull of reforms on the movement or leaders of the movement for instance, there are folks here in the area, in Columbus area, who uh, realize that uh, the city council is, as it's currently constituted, is not of the uh, radical type. And so the response is, we want reform, and we won't reform now, but we need to get rid of the city council. So they're pursuing an electoral response to put other people in to replace the ones that are preaching calm and peace and love and so forth. 
So the pull of reforms are strong. And even though we could easily say that these reforms are limited at best, the movement at various stages will be pulled very heavily to continue with those reforms that others uh, with more pressure would uh, scoff at. And we haven't even touched on what these reforms might be. I don't think we'll have time today, but considering that the original demand was to defund the police, and then everyone immediately said, oh, we didn't mean that literally. I mean, all the liberals said that. We don't know what kind of reforms might pass if there were actual democracy and what effect they would have. Um, Certainly, if we're just talking about putting money into social services and taking away from the police and that sort of thing, I mean, that's all tinkering. It's not disarming the police and changing the character of policing under capitalism. Speaking of social services, I hope everybody saw the article in yesterday's New York Times about the teenager who was killed in Columbus and what happened there. It's just a tragic story. Long before she's killed, she's set up for killing by the system there uh, and the failure of social services to do what they should have done to help her. I would just add, I think that that story about social services failing uh, that young woman is exactly why, you know, people so respond to these these stories because they can see in, in individual cases of police brutality the whole story of a system failing individuals and setting them up for, you know, just completely, you know, failing them. So, Aaron, you your article in With Sober Senses is about the, the police killing of uh, Makia Bryant which we learned about just like moments before we learned the the, the, the jury's verdict in the, in the George Floyd murder trial. But one aspect of your article was that, look, you know, there's the killing of Makia Bryant, but it was not an isolated incident, which is why you, you said death by cop again. How bad is the situation in Columbus? And is this something recent? Because Gabriel was was talking about like the cops basically in a show of strength they're becoming more violent and they're you know going on strike and saying call the city council, are we get, are we getting a, a vicious reaction that's sudden or have things all, always been bad in Columbus? This is Aaron. Well, there's a long history of uh, police misconduct going back 20 plus years. Back in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was more profiling than it was killings. But in the last five months, from December of 2020 till the end of April, in Columbus, there have been five cop killings of black people, uh, including Micaiah Bryant, who was the last one uh, near the end of April. Prior to that, uh, at least in the year 2020 itself, going from January to to December when the shooting really started of the five people, uh, there were three before starting at the beginning of the year until December. So that makes eight uh, killings of black people by Columbus police or Franklin County sheriff's deputies or SWAT team people. Uh, in 16 months. So that is clearly new. 
and it seems to be something that is not just happenstance. It's with a vengeance, and it comes at with a vengeance starting in December of different police officers uh, targeting uh, people for reasons that, that are just almost beyond belief. It's just a endemic feature of policing that white cops are now on a rampage, it seems, in Columbus with impunity. And uh, the response of the um, Columbus administration, the mayor's department and so on, has been well-meaning, I guess, in a way, but it's been a total failure. They've removed the police chief. Uh, it, it took until April, uh, end of January of this year, after the two killings in December. There have been all sorts of discussions about reforming internal police procedures, but, I mean, that's opaque to us, and you know, we really don't know. And then there is a, 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 an attempt to try to hire a new police chief, which the mayor says has to be a change agent. I mean, come on. The One of the cases, uh, the, the policeman uh, who shot and killed Andre Hill it, right before Christmas was actually fired, uh, strangely enough, and he was charged with murder. He is now pending trial and released on a $1 million recognizance bond. So that's one out of five that seems to have some kind of consequences to his action. The others are, several are under still under investigation, but there have been no indictments or no word about what the status of those cases are. And uh, I, I read that the mayor of Columbus has actually implored uh, the new Department of Justice under Merrick Garland uh, to investigate the Columbus police force, and uh, th that's happening elsewhere in, in Westchester County in, in New York, a uh, suburb of New York City. The new district attorney there has asked uh, the DOJ to investigate the police force, and the Department of Justice is already on its own investigating both the Minneapolis police uh, and the Louisville police, uh, who murdered Breonna Taylor last year, and they've got new charges against Derek Chauvin and uh, his little buddies. So I, I think they're well-meaning to some extent and very much different from the, the, the Trump Department of Justice. But I'm left with this question and a lot of skepticism. In the end, how much good can investigations of the police do? And uh, the fact that the feds are back in the business of trying to do something about overtly racist police departments and uninhibited killings of black people is very, very important. And the fact that they're starting some prosecutions in some of these more horrendous cases, which they're doing, of course, because they're worried about riots in the street, but they're also doing them, and that's that's very good, but what's more important than the individual prosecutions are what Andrew just mentioned, the investigations that can result in uh, cease and desist orders which are consented to 
what happens is the DOJ either sues the city or threatens to sue the city or gets them in negotiations and they agree to some changes in the policing and they agree to some federal oversight of how, how it's going. And this happened, used to happen a lot until Mr. Trump came in and then there was none. This is, is tremendously important for making actual change. The, the reason you do it as a decree or in court is because then it becomes a court order and the city can't just disregard it. They can get in trouble if they don't uh, carry out the terms of the agreement. So it's a very effective kind of remedy. I don't know how widespread that will actually be. It's certainly some hope, something that I'm sure Black Lives Matter will agitate for to get that going more and more. I completely agree. But um, in, in the case of one of those, like the old saying goes, God is a hack writer. Attorney General Keith Ellison, who secured the conviction in the, the case of George Floyd's murder, had to spend the, the, night, the day of the conviction speaking to protesters outside of the Brooklyn Center Police Department in a helmet and, and begging them to go home and, and essentially getting shouted down. And you can find the video of that out there. And it just seems that as much as, as there are these attempts within, you know, um, well-meaning attorney generals and systems, they're, they're just run aground against the nature of policing and the fact that people are getting really sick of it. Well, I was just going to pick up on the uh, DOJ request that the mayor of Columbus, uh, Andrew Ginther, made. And uh, it's very clear that he doesn't want uh, the DOJ to start with investigations of open cases, but to, he says in his letter, an invitation to engage in a review of Columbus police operations identifying any and all racial biases in policing efforts and offering findings and coordinated solutions for reform. And then it goes on to say that they that uh, we want to partner with the DOJ, which is understandable but, but somewhat troubling. And I think that there's been a history with the Fraternal Order of Police in Columbus, the city of Columbus, to resist the DOJ, obviously, but partnering in any way that would put pressure on the FOP to agree to their consent decree would be something that they're really going to struggle with because Columbus does not have, nor have they ever, had a consent decree unlike uh, Cleveland and Cincinnati, for example, which had the, uh, the teeth of enforcement through the courts. It's always been a mutual agreement that somehow gets worked out and the DOG signs off on a mutual agreement, at least in Columbus. So this is definitely a, a change in uh, Columbus procedures here. And there's actually a group in Columbus area that is soliciting testimony from anyone who wants to provide testimony about police mistreatment as part of this process uh, independently of the mayor's office. Some interesting things, but also things that are of real concern uh, for us and whether we uh, would support that or we would um, try to make uh, some critical support that would be different than saying this generally a good thing. 
But one thing we can say is that it's it's definitely an admission that um, the problem is not a few bad apples or even a few bad uh, police department management. It's, it's an admission that racism is so systemic that it requires a, a very big reform and very um, strong enforcer, i.e. the federal government, before anything can, can get a little better. So I think that's important. The other thing people are saying is new is that the police are responding quicker to killings by having quicker investigations and more indictments. I don't know if that'll be proven uh, to be true, but in the old days, you know, they used to just say nothing for, for months, say, well, we're investigating or whatever, but now the movement will not let the police get away with that. They demand answers. And so that's progress too. All these little things you might call progress, but how much progress is possible is is another question entirely. Aaron, uh, one one last thing, a footnote here is the, the uh, statistics uh, that are available to us show that consent decrees that have been put in place tend to do some good to reduce incidences of police misconduct. The problem is that when they're then resolved and the consent decrees go away, it picks up right back up again. Yes, that's the problem. I mean, policing is is unique within all the forms that racism takes in this country. Policing is the most insidious because the police have a job to do which is to keep a lid on rebellion against the system. And uh, that means protecting property, protecting peace, so the capitalists can operate efficiently and peacefully and with uh, the workers coming to work instead of going out to demonstrate and all those things that are just essential to the U.S. Way of life as it is now. So I have uh, certainly grave reservations that very much can be done to reform policing. Well, there was a decision made at the end of April, which is about what ten days ago, by the U.S. District Court for the for Southern Ohio, or which um, was a preliminary injunction given by the judge that prohibits the use of projectiles like wooden bullets, mace, pepper spray, some types of body slams and something called kettling to peaceful demonstrators. And it came out of the George Floyd demonstrations in May and June in Columbus, in which there were some 800 complaints about uh, being pepper sprayed, being hit by wooden bullets and lacerations and so on. And in repeated demonstrations, some people re- experienced it more than once. So as a result of all the testimony that was available, th- there's going to be a lawsuit, class action lawsuit by the people involved for v- violations of the First and Fourth Amendment rights. And uh, in the interim, while that case is being scheduled for adjudication, the judge has ordered the uh, Columbus Police Department to be unable to use typical instruments of crowd control, quote-unquote crowd control, 
against demonstrators who are not only peaceable, but are also engaging in verbal conduct, which I'm sure would be something we wouldn't repeat on the air, as well as sitting down in the street and so forth. So that was somewhat interesting. Uh, unfortunately, it only has what a preliminary injunction has is a six-month duration. And who, who brought this case? A, a whole list of plaintiffs. These are people who were hurt, maimed, and so forth in the protests. Yeah, yes. protests. Yeah. Yes. Very interesting. It's a very interesting brief that's available. Um, I've posted on the our website a comment about the article, uh, Death by Cop Again in Columbus, Ohio, a link in which you can read the brief of the, of the judge in this injunction. And it has a very interesting four or five page section on the history of policing in the United States as background. So I thought I would just bring that out, that Columbus is also one of several cities. I think there's something in, uh, been done in Portland and in California to prohibit some actions that would normally be occurring during peaceful demonstrations for uh, the movement itself. Uh, if, if I may, on the, the Portland federal lawsuit is, is particularly interesting because it's about the use of, of tear gas and the widespread use of tear gas has actually last year caused some um, medical discoveries that so many people were tear gassed as a, you know, effectively a sort of clinical trial and they found that women who, who go to these protests had side effects. Um, it was causing uh, delays in their menstrual cycles and, and other issues because tear gas had been cleared for use on, on protesters as a quote-unquote safe force without ever being tested on women. And that's part of this federal lawsuit uh, against its use. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. 
But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So what about new laws? Biden and the Democrats have recently decided to get, to get behind a police reform package, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. One part problem here is their zeal to get bipartisan support. So there's an issue of how much they'll water down the bill to get people like Senator Tim Scott and some other Republicans on board. But apart from that, is police reform through legislation and other means even a realistic solution to the problems? It's one like question like, you know, how much reform can we get passed because of all these political challenges? But there's another question is like, is this even going to solve anything, these reforms? No. Um, in, in several ways. I think we all know that the police are just going to continue doing what they do no matter how much reform is done. And there's a growing view that, you know, reform is just a way to hand over money and resources to, to these departments. I mean, these, these oversight boards and so on, it's just just more and more sapping of public money and not addressing the issue of, of policing and, and the fundamental its fundamental nature. And um, I, I think the real trouble that the Democrats and these initiatives to reform them are going to run against, keeping in mind what was said earlier, which I agree with, there is a tendency towards reform in this, but I think there is a growing recognition that reform is not enough here. And I don't know what they're going to be able to do to placate that. Um, again, again, I'll, I'll cite from anecdotally, but from my experiences last summer in the, the, the scene around, near me, the Democratic Party does what it always does whenever there's a mass movement and energy around something, which is they, they go in and they recruit. And I saw people who were there, and then they disappeared, and they got a job in an AC, AC uh, air-conditioned room writing policy that's going to go nowhere. But it didn't really affect anything because... The, the energy on the streets, the movement leaders that were there were felons, addicts, or recovering addicts. Um, the, the group that I was involved with, the three leaders of it had met in jail and in their felony, uh, their time serving for their felony. And that's not the type that the Democratic Party is going to recruit for their reform initiatives, and they weren't amenable to it. And I think there is a growing, just a, a real growing consensus, maybe small, but existing, that reform's not going to do it. It's not going to cut it anymore. And I, I think that's a learned historical thing. They were able to pull this years ago after Ferguson, where they had all of these reforms, body cameras and, and all this. And people are seeing that it's just, it hasn't done anything. All the body cameras provide is another angle of the unprompted killing or brutality. 
you can pass all the reforms um, that you can pass, but they have to be enforced. So, you know, as long as the police can turn off their body cameras or rely on the fact that they're not going to have to turn, turn them over after they kill someone, um, then nothing's going to change. So there's enormous resistance. And also, there are laws, proposed laws pending in a lot of the states to make more things illegal and to, and to make it much harder to demonstrate or much scarier to demonstrate. So I'm glad to hear, you know, that Columbus uh, may uh, go the other way and restrict what the police can do. But there's all kinds of proposals to make uh, various aspects of protesting illegal. I don't know if you saw the article uh, in our web journal, WSS, on what's happening in England, where there's a whole package of laws that make all kinds of traditional protesting illegal, and there was a demonstration about it on Saturday. But the uh, many states, um, uh, especially, of course, those Republican-dominated states, have similar, similar laws pending. So it may be that they'll um, outlaw chokeholds, but they'll give the police nine new grounds for shooting you or something. It's just, it's it's all band-aids on a thoroughly rotten system, as people have indicated here today. <clears throat> so... I'd really like to know what the the Black Lives Matter movements in the various locations are saying and doing about this stuff. Are they going to be able to handle the lobbying and the protesting in the streets, which obviously it's the latter that's gotten whatever reforms we get. Uh, or is everyone going to rush off thinking that uh, they can get the Democrats to solve their problems by, by passing reforms? I think it's particularly interesting in the case of England that that package of bills restricting the ability to protest had to be delayed because of a new outbreak of protests in response to a police killing. And I think it's really interesting we're seeing this desire on the part of, of liberal forces and governments to sort of attempt to paper over this fundamental problem of the nature of, of policing and to to calm down, calm down the anger and, and the justified rage at these things. And every time they, it appears that those reformist, uh, you know, um, liberal tendencies have a, have a win, the police kill someone again and p get people riled up. And so it's just, they are sort of their own worst enemy in that regard because they were about to have that victory and get restrictions on protests. And then one of their own killed, killed a woman. Well, you know, not all reforms are the same. They're, they're the types of reforms that change the balance of power, and those sometimes can have more of a, an effect on future struggles, right? So I'm thinking about some demands I've heard articulated, like banning police unions or doing things to try to curb the power of the fraternal order of police. Do any of you have a sense of how widely articulated those are, demands are and you know, how, whether they're becoming more to the forefront of people's um, consciousness. The AFL-CIO is just now re releasing their their statement on this issue. They've, they've been pushed for it and pushed for it throughout the year because there are affiliated police unions. Uh, yes. Yeah. And yes. the AFL-CIO is backing them and saying they're happy to have them in the AFL-CIO. Oh, wow. Yes. Which is, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think, though, if they were unaffiliated, 
if if they were an unaffiliated union and they were still existing as a union, I don't think they would lose any of their their glamour in the eyes of you know the the mayors they essentially hold hostage. You know. Right. They they hold mayors hostage. I mean, I I think that the the Brendan raised the really crucial concept of, of the balance of power, and this is why I'm somewhat more hopeful uh, than I think some of the rest of you. I think the balance of power in this country is beginning to shift, and I think we saw this with the George Floyd murder trial, where uh, I think Anne you know, mentioned uh, towards the beginning of this uh, interview, and it's in the uh, MHI editorial, you had a lot of cops in Minneapolis, including the chief of police, and they were breaking the blue wall of silence, and they were going after a fellow cop. And we see that the, how does the trial end with Derek Chauvin in handcuffs, you know, and this is splashed all across the world, you know, and everybody sees it, including every cop. And if you think back, like say, to Rodney King in, in, in Los Angeles in 92, or Amadou Diallo in New York, what, what always happens, the cops get off because they, you know, move the, the, the venue, the, the trial somewhere where, you know, some white area upstate or, you know, in the rural areas. That didn't happen in Minneapolis. The procedures for jury selection are more conducive to getting a, a, a fair trial. So this didn't come from out of nowhere. Where this all came from was people remember what happened last year in the, after, the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder. They remember the, 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 the torching of the Minneapolis 3rd Precinct. They remember the weeks, months of continual demonstrations spreading worldwide. So there's pressure on them. Okay, this is how these victories get secured. I, I, I agree with everybody. It's not a matter of, you know, what kind of law you got or investigation. It, it, there, there's some of that. The, the, the real problem is enforcement. The real problem is accountability. Okay, and they, they always get off, right? Once they no longer always get off, and I, I think that the, the, the Chauvin conviction is, is, is a turning point in that regard. You know, this guy did not get off and he did not get off in a big way. So this is what I think has to be done is for the movement to put maximum pressure on the powers that be that they can't just knuckle under to the police or willingly knuckle under to the, 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 the police. Uh, and I think, I think the movement has been doing a very good job. So I think you know, I, I don't think the question is reforms versus not reforms in the sense, you know, passing a law, putting in some commission, putting in some procedures, that doesn't do anything. But the real question is accountability, holding the people, you know, who murder, who, you know, maim and so forth, uh, who are brutal, holding them accountable. If, if enough cops are held to account in a big enough way, enough of the time, then we're going to start to see changes in policing. The problem is, at that point, you know, we've got the, 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 the vigilantes that are going to take uh, charge, and the Republicans have already, in some places, said, yeah, you know, you can, you can drive your car into protesters if you feel like it, you know. So, I mean, this is a very long battle, and the forces of reaction aren't giving up, but I, I think that the movement can force 
various legal authorities and courts and so forth to do things that they would not on their own want to do. And I think we're seeing that. Well, we could talk all day, but we are out of time. Thanks again to our guests for this episode. We had Gabriel Donnelly, author of Minneapolis After the Third Precinct, the BLM Uprising a Year Later, Andrew Clard, one of the authors of MHI's new editorial on the conviction of George Floyd's murderer, Aaron Williams, another co-author of that same editorial and the author of an article called Death by Cop Again in Columbus, Ohio. So thank you all for being on the show today. We will link to all those articles on the website and in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 